Good morning, everyone. Thank you, interactive. Um, so thank you so much for inviting me back to share what's on my heart today. I will be very honest with you. This was a tough one to prepare for, for a lot of reasons. One of those reasons is that I can be stubborn and I had to be willing to learn what I'm going to share with you today and receive it. I'm grateful that Jesus never gives up on us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Even when we're stubborn. So although I've shared here once before, I know that some of you have no idea who I am. So uh, like Josh said, I think I'd like to give you a little bit of context. So my husband and I have been married for over 10 years. I'm a homeschool mama to our two little gems, and I'm also a small business owner. So my life is what I refer to as mostly controlled chaos. If you check any of my social media channels, you will notice that I write about shame. Isn't that such a great conversation starter? I know, but it's what I know. I have battled shame my entire life. For the last two years, since I started counseling at Crossways to Life for the depression that was robbing my life, and then entering into the Exchanged Life Advanced Training last year, Jesus has had me on this wild ride of unpacking all of the lies that shame has sold me in my life. It hasn't been easy to look at even some of my earliest memories, only to recognize how shame was already working in those lies that would lead me to believe that I would never be enough for this world or for Jesus. I've come to call that voice of shame my inner mean girl. I think we all have one, and I need the reminder that the voice that tries to tear me down is not me. And I have to say, my inner mean girl is a brute. She likes to attack me and make me hide, mostly because she tells me that if I am seen and known, I will be ridiculed and rejected. Whether it's my marriage, parenting, friendships, work relationships, or something else, shame is always nagging in my ear to tell me that I'm different, never enough, and always too much. It's led me down a path of people-pleasing and performing for acceptance, and frankly, I'm still recovering. Well, about six months ago, God gave me a picture about all of this. So in this picture, the weather was incredibly hazy and dark, like driving through a thick fog at midnight. I was looking into this cavernous space. The shape of it kind of reminded me of a baseball dugout, but it was much bigger and deeper. I noticed someone crawling out of it through a dirt field on their hands and knees, clearly worn and exhausted. I knew that something was being yelled at them from the dark space behind them, but it was muffled and I couldn't always make out the words. I only knew for sure that every phrase uttered at them seemed to make them smaller and smaller. The person, however, seemed fixated on this small, pinpoint of light. It was like they were being drawn in, like reaching that light was their only hope of escaping the battering in the dark. Somehow, I knew that person was being rebellious to those voices in the dark. At one point, I did hear one say, you know it's all a lie. You'll regret this. You'll never make it. But the person carried on. 
And it was like they were crawling to the edge of a painting because standing in the dark, I couldn't make out what they were fixated on aside from this apparent small pinpoint of light. That's when my view switched to the pinpoint of light. A woman in a white gown willed her body with everything she had to draw closer to that light. A chorus of warriors cheered, although she clearly could not hear them. Swords clattered in slow motion all around her, although she clearly could not see them. Nearly on her stomach now, she peeked back at the hollow darkness that she dragged herself out of or was pulled from, I really couldn't tell which. Looking maybe 80 or 90 feet behind her, there were pulses of her memories playing on a big screen like an old movie at a drive-in. She grit her teeth and suddenly noticed all of the warriors around her. Her eyes glinted with hope for the first time since I started watching her, and she fixed her eyes on that pinpoint of light that had grown to fill the space around her. A hand stretched out, and planting a foot in the dirt, she was lifted to her feet by the warriors around her. One polished a spot on her shoulder and smiled. Bewildered, she pointed her eyes from the light back to the darkness that she came from, and she panicked, not for herself, but for seeing what she came out of. Inside that darkness, she saw familiar faces that she knew. Like a two-way mirror, she could see them, but they couldn't seem to see her. Oh no, she looked around her. We were tricked. That is not who you are. Don't buy the lies. Don't listen to the shadows. You are loved. You are worthy. You are treasured beyond imagination. You are wanted. You belong here. You are enough. This is what the battle with shame looks like for me every single day. The highlight or low light reel of my life plays in front of me all the time. My past screaming that I can't and won't ever get to live free in who Jesus made me to be because I'm too far gone. What's even harder is that it tells me that I don't deserve to live free, that I belong hidden in those shadows because I am such a disgrace to Jesus. It tells me I'm forgotten unwanted, unloved, and different. But Jesus, he is the light of hope that I fix my eyes on as I continue to learn more of what he thinks about his sons and daughters, of which I get to be one. And so do you. He chose us and he wants us not for what we can offer him, but because he loves us. When Jesus shows us and we accept that we are fully loved and fully measured, that we are always enough and never too much for him, something in us changes that never wants to go back to those shadows. It's too painful 
The lies of shame become more identifiable, and although it absolutely will not stop yelling at us, shame somehow loses the power that it once had over our lives. Jesus pursues us, inviting us to trust that the way he sees us is reliable. And we can walk in who he made us to be with the freedom of knowing that he adores us for who he made us to be. No more pretending, no more performing, and no more hiding. He simply wants us. There is freedom in being enough in Christ. And that's what we're going to explore today. Let's pray. Jesus, there are so many things in this world that fight for our focus. They cause us to measure and compare ourselves against standards that we don't understand. And shame tries to tell us that those things are important and that our worth and value is tied to them. But Jesus, I pray that we may be present in this moment with you and our hearts would be open to receive what you want to tell us, that you love us that we are worthy of that love and that you call us enough no matter what the world would try to tell us. In your name I pray, amen. Well, we're going to spend some time today looking at a few verses in Ephesians from the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure if you can relate to the story of the woman crawling away from those lies of shame, but I think that we can all relate to having moments where we've experienced feeling so beat down and run down by the world around us that we feel about an inch tall. I'm not alone with that, right? Okay, maybe I am. (laughs) So I have spent most of my life feeling small because of shame believing that God was so disappointed in me, I would never measure up to his expectations of me and would never be used by him because of it. So when Jesus gave me this picture in the spring, I knew in my head that other people struggled with shame. I had had conversations with some of my closest friends about our mutual struggles with it. But one of shame's biggest strategies, at least in my life and maybe in yours as well, is to make me think I'm different. At that point, I had been on a journey with Jesus for about 18 months, and I was more familiar with identifying my inner mean girl than I ever had been, but I still felt very alone. In a single moment, though, with this picture, I saw the world around me differently, and I started to see the people around me differently, too. Jesus had been beckoning me to trust him with my identity, and I had taken a few steps into the light of his truth about it. But this picture helped me understand and realize something. He not only wants his people to live free, we also need to remind each other who we are in Christ. Amen? We're in this together, and we need warriors around us to invite us back into that freedom when shame gets loud in our ears. He doesn't want us to live in a shell of ourselves, buying the lies from shame that will never be enough simply because that's what the world seems to tell us. And since we're new creations in Christ, I don't really think we want to live that way either. 
He wants to know that we are enough, that he already loves us completely, and no measure in this world will ever compare to how fully measured we are in him. Doesn't that sound like freedom? Yes, I thought so too. And it was a freedom that I wanted to both understand and experience. So I started to ask the question, what if we really are enough? Like what if Jesus has so qualified us, so accepted us that we don't ever have to look to this world for an indication of our worth and value? What would it mean for our daily lives if we were to stand in that truth? So that's when Jesus pointed me to the apostle Paul's letters. See, Paul knew who he was in Christ and he never seemed to apologize for it. He owned it. And his writing encourages believers across the early church and even us today to embrace the fullness of the gift that we were given at Calvary. So we can dig into scripture and we can come to understand the kind of freedom that we get to live in as well. So Paul spends a great deal of the first chapter of Ephesians talking about the gift that we've been given in Christ and that he chose us. And in the second chapter, he contrasts the former and now, the state we were in before Jesus came and our state now as believers. And then in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, Paul says this, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That word workmanship is the Greek word poema, literally or figuratively a woven fabric. Now just to check in, who wove the fabric? God did, right? Was not a trick question. So it's safe to say that the creation of that fabric was intentional right? It says we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's what Paul says. So there were no mistakes when he wove us together. And we get to choose to trust Jesus and freely live in who he made us to be. See, part of the freedom that we can choose to embrace in the finished work of Jesus is accepting our wiring as enough and owning who we are instead of fighting it. I don't know if you've ever had this, but it happens to me fairly often. Have you ever been talking with a friend and you hear yourself say something about yourself that you know is so contrary to what is true about you? Like I'm not the only person who does this, right? A great example is when someone gives you a compliment. Usually, ah, see now we get giggles. See, usually about something that you know is true about you or something you know you're good at but you would never say that you're good at that thing or that you know that it's true about you for fear of coming off as prideful. Or somehow you feel shame for enjoying something so much that if you own it as part of the way that Jesus has wired you and gifted you, you're scared he'll take it away. That's how shame has warped my concept of God. Like I always have to keep my guard up, but play it cool and keep one eye behind me to see if the other shoe's going to drop. So instead of receiving and saying thank you, 
you find something deflective coming out of your mouth, like, well, I wouldn't go that far, but thanks. Or, oh gosh, that's not true, but I appreciate the encouragement. Or something that makes it seem like you had nothing to do with it at all. That's shame in motion. You struggle to receive that compliment even though you know you are operating in your wiring at that moment. See, shame is always doing the math, assessing our circumstances to see if we're going to blend into the crowd or if we will stand apart from it. And shame always wants to keep us hidden. It's that voice that mocks from the shadows, you know it's all a lie. In my own life, I've traced this response back to a lie that developed when I was in grade school. That being noticed for anything or making myself stand out as different in any way, positive or negative, doesn't matter. I was going to draw unnecessary attention toward myself. I would be seen and therefore known and open to judgment. Being known and not loved is the scariest feeling for me maybe for you as well. The last time I spoke on a Sunday, there was a technical glitch that meant the recording was lost. Initially, I was disappointed, but I was also secretly grateful. There was no evidence, no historical concrete proof of what I had said. I could just walk away knowing that I had the opportunity to do something I have always wanted to do, but because of shame, never believed I could do, speak on a Sunday morning and not have to deal with any potential rejection. I would not have to be known. When I say that shame is always in my ear, I mean always, because today it's telling me that the recording will work and I will have a concrete reminder of how little value I have to offer in this world. It's that voice that mocks me and says, it's all a lie. Your wiring is a lie. You are not good enough. It's only a matter of time before they all figure out who you really are and you will come running back to the shadows where you belong. That's how shame mocks me. And it tricks me into believing that accepting who I am and being known will mean rejection. When this happens, we can end up forgetting about the battle that's happening over us and only see the dirt that we feel like we're crawling through. Maybe you have a secret passion or a gift that you hide from the world because shame has told you that's the safest thing to do or that you're not that good at it anyway or that it's selfish to enjoy it so much. That one really sticks out to me because what if? What if operating in your wiring, in the workmanship of the fabric that he wove specifically with you in mind, with everything you are, with all he designed you to be, including all of the things that you enjoy so much and the gifts and the talents he's given you. What if standing in who you are isn't only meant to bless others? What if it's supposed to bless you? Operating in our wiring and owning it requires us to trust Jesus with us. In his book, The Naked Gospel, Andrew Farley addresses this saying, our fear of depending fully on Christ may also stem from not realizing that he thoroughly enjoys us. 
He has no desire to erase our uniqueness and turn us into clones. He considers our hobbies, interests, and senses of humor, and he wants to work through these things in the expression of his life. See, we have a choice to do everything with Jesus all day, all the time, amen? We can invite him into every moment because he is always with us, whether we acknowledge his presence or not. But when we're operating in the workmanship for the good with which he created us, he meets us in those ways that are almost tangible. We experience his love in a special way. Now, shame may try to tell us that we can't tell when we're operating in our wiring and who God made us to be or that when we're attempting to rely on ourselves or the world to tell us if we measure up, you know, if we're too much or not enough. I would disagree. I think we do know. It's when we start sticking on the masks, attempting to masquerade as someone other than who we are. I like to call that hustling for our worthiness. It's when we find ourselves buying some lie from shame about our approval and acceptance. And so we behave contrary to who we are and the freedom that we have already been given in Christ. When we know that we are enough in Christ, we cease the hustle for our worthiness. It's one thing to live out our responsibilities and our lives with excellence. That's a totally different talk. But accepting our wiring and owning it with Jesus. We recognize that fundamentally we are not our performances and we never can be. Remember what Paul told us? For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. When I was probably four or five years old, I remember my mom asking me what I thought I wanted to be when I grew up. Parents, you all do this, right? So I know we made a list together on an old Texaco Fuels notepad and we shoved it in a drawer. I only remember two things that I said that day. One was a banker, the other was a cashier at Zares or Zellers. Okay, now even though I think childhood me just wanted to hang out with the Zeddy Teddy, there was information in those career choices that was very important to me. See, this was a time when you had to fill out a lot of papers to get your own money out of your bank account. Okay, so I remember the dark brown wooden desk, you guys remember this, and there were all those slips tucked tucked into the clear front rack holders, right? You guys remember this? Okay, just checking, I'm dating myself. I found, I I would always play with those uh, carbon copy papers, I loved them, I thought they were so interesting because of all the lines and the boxes for information on them. This surprises no one who knows me. I also thought that it was odd that they had to tie their pens to the table. I thought that was very bizarre. I figured they couldn't trust people with their pens. I also thought that maybe they could be very expensive pens because they were far more ornate than the ones that I saw at my teacher's desk. I also wondered why you had to work so hard to get your own money back. Because you would then take your completed form and printed passbook, don't forget that, you would take that to the teller who would verify your slip, take it for approval, and then return with your money. I thought those tellers and approvers must have held a whole lot of power to hold on to everybody's money like that. It was also a time without touch screens or smart screens. So I remember the cashiers at Zares had this plastic flip book of buttons to push when you checked out your groceries. Do you guys remember that? 
I'm really dating myself now. So you would need to flip through the book to the right level so that they could cash your groceries out properly. I just thought their job looked fun because they got to put a lot, push a lot of fancy buttons in a flip book, right? I was five. So the one thing that these two fields had in common in my childhood eyes was that they both appeared to stand to do their jobs. It seemed like they needed to get approvals for things from people I couldn't talk to and people behind a desk that my parents didn't seem to talk to either. So I figured that if they had access to our money and our groceries, they must have been important. So I believed that if I got a job as an adult where people needed to come to me for the approvals and I did a lot of walking, well, that would be evidence that I was important too. That I was important enough to be in the know and somehow I would matter. See, somewhere along the way, I picked up this lie that my work informed my importance in the world. As a teenager, I would bust tables five shifts a weekend and I thought that was normal. Lots of walking involved in that. I remember one weekend, a friend invited me to go to the movies with a big group and I said, I can't go, I have to work. And this person looked at me point blank and said, you are such a workaholic, do you not get time off? I may have been 16 and I wore that like a badge of honor. So fast forward to five years ago, when I was working four jobs, I had two kids under the age of three and I was crying in a heap on my hallway floor. That tiny little lie that I believed as a kid culminated in a bad case of identity theft. I didn't realize it at the time, but shame had set this foothold in my life and it slowly and subversively built the lie about myself and my value in this world. It said, Crystal, who you are and your importance is tied to your work. I was hustling for my worthiness because it felt so familiar and I didn't know how to stop it. But I was exhausted and I was so mad at myself for failing my family, my employers, and especially my kids. I mean, mom was supposed to hold everything together, right? Work all day, come home, bake organic muffins, and be sure to sing a song at bedtime. No pressure. That little lie that I believed about my work extended to every area of my life, and it fueled my performance-driven mentality at home and church too. I had all these good intentions of being helpful and serving others and making myself an offering on the altar in the name of Jesus, and it all came crashing down and left me in pieces. Sometimes the hustle looks good, and it often stems from noble intentions. See, at the core of it all, I know that I just wanted Jesus to be proud of me, I wanted to be worthy of carrying out his work. I wanted to belong with him. And I believed that the road to acceptance was paved on my actions, not his. My concept of God became so warped that all of these perceived expectations that I thought he had of me left me thinking that he was somewhere out in the clouds judging me. I was trying to be a good Christian. I was trying to do all the things that I thought he wanted me to do for him. And I couldn't do it all. 
I figured that meant that I had failed the test, so I was worthless, and God must have felt the same. See, when we're hustling for our worthiness, everything becomes conditional on our performance, and we will always be left wanting. The lies can start to stack up like they did to me. Lie number one, if we perform for our worthiness, we can control our situations and other people's opinions of us. Lie number two, if we do a good enough job of it, we may take on responsibility for everything, but at least we can control our outcomes that way. Lie number three, I may feel awful inside and end up taking on a bunch of things that make me miserable, but I had better ignore it because I need the acceptance even if I have to sacrifice myself to do it. Before we know it, we end up looking out there for acceptance rather than to Jesus. We start wondering why other peoples can do things that we can't seem to do or why they can handle so much more than we can. At least that's what I wondered when I cried on my hallway floor. The day I cried on my hallway floor was the day that I had to admit to myself that I had been wearing more masks than I could count and I had totally lost sight of who I was. That moment felt like a defeat. It felt like the shadows were where I belonged. And it felt like Jesus was really far away. He wasn't. I know now that he sat with me as I cried. He always does. See, the hustle for our worthiness or performing for acceptance is always based outwardly. Shame keeps our attention fixed on the math of where we are in relation to our peers at all times in all areas of life. But when we accept that we are his workmanship and we're already accepted by Jesus, that we cannot add to or take away from our worthiness, we look to him and his truth for our affirmation, not the world or our peers. We can stop hiding who we are, knowing that Jesus has fully accepted us. And because of this, we can also stop comparing ourselves to others. Amen? Amen. Historically, I really struggle with comparison. It's almost always for one of two reasons. One, I feel unqualified. Or two, I believe that I'm not where I should be on my journey. Either way, the core of these things is the belief that I am not enough where I am as who I am. The try-hard cycle of performance returns like I'm running a race and constantly checking the other lane to see if I'm getting closer, pulling ahead, or falling behind. If I'm honest, I usually temporarily stop trusting Jesus in these moments and I hop back on the wheel of self-reliance. Maybe this happens to you too. It tricks you into checking your trophy case, initially just to see what work needs to be done to make you become enough. Well, if I could get that promotion, then they would accept me. If I could sing the way that they did, they would value me. If I could move to that neighborhood, then I would belong. The grass becomes greener everywhere but where we are. 
We start to believe that we are not enough, that something is inherently wrong with us, and we decide we must try harder. And guess what? Shame agrees. Everything out there seems to prove the point, and we buy the lie. As we start offering those trophies to others, our badges of honor that look a whole lot like the hustle for worthiness, we start offering them to Jesus too. And I'm not talking about an attitude of gratitude here. I'm talking about bringing him a list of our accomplishments with the hopes of receiving a pat on the back that proves our worthiness of being his son or daughter. If I, then they. If I, then they. If I, then God. The consequence of comparison is believing the lie that our presence in heavenly places is based on our merits, not on the finished work of Jesus. And when this happens, we can start to question our security, love, acceptance, significance, value, and belonging. We end up in a performance cycle that's tied to our identity because we're trying to fulfill a measure that Christ has already fulfilled. We start stuffing away the things that don't appear acceptable to others or things that make people uncomfortable in an effort to prove that we are enough. Now, I don't know how this shows up in your life, but in my life, I start to hide who I am. I end up feeling like I'm stuck somewhere between giving up and running back to the shadows or planting my foot in the dirt in an effort to stand on the truth of who Jesus says I am. And all of this time that shame is assessing where we stand against everyone and everything else, we can feel caught in the crossfire. It reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians about the battle between the spirit and the flesh. It's real. And when I feel the fallout of that battle, I'm now reminded that Jesus is always fighting for me. Jesus is always fighting for you. We're always being fought over. Shame will try and twist those moments to make us believe that we're not trying hard enough. Pull up your bootstraps and get it together. That's another one that shame likes to mock me with from the shadows. But that is not what Jesus asks us to do. Thank you, Jesus. He asks us to come to him and to rest. I cannot help but return to Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 when I think about rest. See, rest is a gift that I can often struggle to receive because my to-do list is a mile long and screaming at me on a good day. Maybe that relates. And yet he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice that it does not say, come to me when you're exhausted by the pressures of this world, and I will tell you that you're doing a terrible job and ask you to work harder. Thank God Jesus doesn't say that. That's not what he asks of us. If you look at that verse in the original language, I love word studies, it can read, come to me all who are physically fatigued and spiritually anxious, and I will exempt you from it. Isn't that beautiful? 
If we believe that there is something inherently wrong with us and the way that we're wired, if we believe that standing in who we are is selfish or prideful or not enough, if we hustle for our worthiness to try and stand out or blend in with our peers, it's awfully hard to stand in the rest that Jesus gifted us. He is standing there 100% of the time with the gift of rest in his hands in an open palm. When I forget that, I end up so weary. I end up exhausted of my life and responsibilities and the dreams that are hidden in my heart that shame says are never going to happen. Now we know that the answer is trusting Jesus with who we are. He didn't make any mistakes when he created us. We can't hustle for our worthiness because we're already worthy in Christ. And our value is not determined by our performance or ability to please other people. But maybe you're like me and you have a hard time walking in that sometimes. Maybe not. Let me give you an example. So as I was finishing my edits on this talk last Friday, version number six, in case you're curious, it doesn't surprise anyone who knows me. I looked at my phone at about 10 after one and I realized I had a calendar notification. You guys know this has all happened to you, right? Okay. So I was supposed to be in a town an hour away for a vision therapy appointment for my daughter and I panicked. I called the clinic, sure enough, I was scheduled to be there and the appointment was already paid for, which meant we were out the money. So where do you think shame was when I was literally crying tears in my lunch plate? Loud and proud in my ears. It was telling me that I let the clinic down by not giving them enough notice and courtesy to schedule in someone else. I let my daughter down because those appointments are important for her recovery and well-being. And I let my husband down because I didn't steward our finances well. Like I said, the appointment was paid for and we weren't getting a reschedule. And as I cried, I said, God, I feel so awful and mad at myself right now. Why does shame have to do this to me? This is not what rest feels like. And he whispered back to me, you are still enough to me and you are enough for your daughter too. You are exactly the parent I wanted her to have and you're still doing great. I didn't feel great. I actually texted my husband and asked him to pray because I knew that this was a shame spiral in the making. I felt mad and frustrated, the kind that feels like someone just socked you in the gut and knocked the wind out of you. And yet Jesus says, we are not our mistakes. And our performance or lack of it does not define who we are. That's rest. See, we had been up for about two hours in the night with our same daughter whose appointment I missed because she had been throwing up from the top bunk. Yeah. Oh, it was it's just as awesome as you think it is. It was actually her sister on the bottom bunk who woke us up to tell us that she was wet because she got thrown up on. Now, I have to give my daughter credit for trying not to throw up in her bed. She just didn't realize her sister was in the splash zone. 
Our whole family was exhausted that day. And I had simply forgotten to call about the appointment until it was too late and I would be charged for it anyway. Rest means that we can run to Jesus and climb into his arms, cry on his shoulder, knowing that he is not watching for our mistakes or basing our worth on them. He's holding our hearts. He's our safe place. He will exempt us from the weight of the burdens if we let him. The more I recognize my need to run to him in a moment of frustration, disappointment, and shame that's leaving me feeling like I will never get anything right, the easier it becomes to trust him the next time those feelings and doubts come up. See, Jesus doesn't want us to live like a shell of ourselves, hiding from who we are and how he wants to express his life through us. He wants us because we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Trusting the truth of who we are in Christ as always enough and never too much allows us to experience freedom. We can breathe and we can rest in him, knowing that the grass is green right where we are, even if circumstances or the world leave us feeling like we're barely moving forward through the dirt. There are so many times in a day that I feel like I am not enough for my family, for my peers, and for God. And I know that I cannot be alone. Sometimes I find myself tiptoeing back to those shadows because they feel familiar and comfortable. But only until I remember that I get to choose. I can choose freedom by trusting that Jesus is who he says he is, so I am who he says I am. When we choose to trust him, he is always right there with open arms. We are wanted, not because of what we have to offer, but because he loves us, because he loves us, because he loves us. We don't have to perform. We don't have to hide. And we don't have to be someone we're not. We can't add a single ounce of grace to the grace that he has already given us. We cannot unearn the gift of our salvation, worthiness, righteousness, or freedom in Christ. He calls us son and daughter because of who we are in Christ, not because of how well we perform in his name. The more that I journey with Jesus, the more that I think Christ's reliance looks a whole lot like becoming who he made us to be in the first place. And since he knows what that looks like, and we're discovering it on the way, we get to choose to live with open hands. He knows how he wants to uniquely live in and through each one of us. And we can simply let him. We get to plant our foot in the dirt and stand on the truth of who we are as his children, not what shame tries to tell us that we are from the shadows. The easiest way to hold a pile of sand is not with a fist, but with an open palm. 
When shame tells us that we need to get a grip on our lives so that we can make ourselves more presentable to Jesus, Jesus says, just come. I just want you. I want to live my life through you. Will you let me? I pray that this week, you will notice the moments where shame tries to lie you back into those shadows. I pray that you will notice the moments where it tries to prevent you from stepping into and owning your wiring and who you are in Christ, from being all that God made you to be when he wove you together. And I pray that in those moments when they come, you would remember that you are loved, you are worthy, you are treasured beyond imagination. You are wanted and you belong. You are enough.